This is Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon Sr. And this is a replacement podcast for number 22 on Doctrine of Stewardship. Had some technical difficulties with it. I apologize for that. And this is meant to replace that. According to Forbes magazine, an issue from this year, there are 2,755 billionaires in the world today. And the list grew in 2020 despite COVID-19. So while the world economy was suffering, 493 new people became billionaires last year. That's one every 17 hours. And of those already who who were billionaires, 86% got even richer in 2020 than they were in 2019. Jeff Bezos heads the list, Amazon. Elon Musk is second, Tesla. Bill Gates is fourth. All of them worth hundreds of billions of dollars. The magazine article said that taken together, the world's billionaires altogether are worth $13 trillion. 2,755 people worth $13 trillion. If they were a country, they would be third on the highest gross domestic product list in the world. Higher than the vast majority of nations in the world, these 2,755. It's hard to conceptualize a number like a trillion. It's a million multiplied by a million. That's a one with 12 zeros. Try to think of it this way. If you were to stack $100 bills on top of each other, Benjamins, a stack of one trillion $100 bills would reach 631 miles high. And that's just one trillion. The billionaires together are worth $13 trillion. <laughs> These are the heroes of our culture, the devastatingly rich. They are the icons, the celebrities. We admire them for what they have. We want to see their houses, their cars, their clothes, their jewelry. We admire them for what they have. And we're proud if anybody from our group is among them. Anybody from my country, my culture. Any women? How many women are on the list? Did Oprah make it? Is Tyler Perry there? We admire them. Some even worship them. And we're willing to overlook many an indiscretion, unethical behavior, bigotry, other character flaws, if they have enough money. Why? Because money eclipses character in Western culture. We have to ask ourselves as Christians, where do we stand in the cult of finance? How does money figure into our worldview, our value system, our life goals, our self-worth? The Bible challenges us with the doctrine of stewardship. Jesus and our money, our relationship to Jesus and our money, that's what Christian stewardship ultimately is about. So we started last time with the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler, Mark 10, 17 to 27. We listened to the text. This time we're going to go back as part of the five-step process. Step two, 
and we're going to treat the text, do some exegesis on it. Uh, we're going to spill over into step three, four as we go along. You'll notice that. Now, in our exegesis, we're going to focus on main ideas, but I'm not going to cover every single verse. I'm just going to focus on main ideas that came to light as I did this research. So I'm going to kind of move around in the text, drop some exegetical wisdom here and there, and then help with some ideas for possible applications that we can use as we preach this passage. Now, you understand the basic rule of biblical interpretation. We move at the level of meaning when we move from meaning then to meaning now. That is to say, we establish what the text meant in the original context, in this case, the story of the rich young ruler. And from there, we translate into our context, here and now, at the level of meaning. And this is important. We transfer the spiritual meaning, not the outward occurrence, from there to here. And this is where our preaching opportunity comes. In the application of meaning from the past to the present, from the then to the now, we can make application to our listeners and help us see our own lives in the light of this Mark 10 passage. Let me show you what I mean. Beginning with the first verse, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We saw in our step one, we noticed the outward appearance of this event, this excited young man running up, falling on his knees. It was interesting, dramatic as a scene. We can use that scene as a storytelling element, but then we want to go deeper than just that. Our commentary led us to focus on the meaning then in this question he asked, what must I do? Right? The wealthy man in this question was suggesting an underlying problem that he has with legalism. He was asking Jesus how he can work his way to divine, to divine favor. He expected some kind of to-do list from Jesus. What must I do? That in the original context is what it meant. And this was a historic problem in Israel. The national reaction or overreaction to a history of idolatry in Israel was legalism. For generations, the people were tripped up by idolatry again and again. Read the Old Testament again and again. Finally, to escape idolatry, they went into legalism and overreaction. They worshipped the law of God instead of the God of the law. This led them to all kinds of abuses and uh, uh, person, uh, interracial, in, excuse me, interpersonal problems, sins against each other, sins against Jesus, as they followed the law by the letter instead of the spirit. Jesus preached about this. So here's where, here's where the young man is. He's stuck there. What must I do? That was a problem then. We can make a transition now to the meaning now at the level of that meaning. The issue is works righteousness is just as relevant now as it was then. If you're led to feel your church needs this emphasis, you can preach this passage. You can make this application right here. There's a history of legalism in the Christian church going back to the first century. The New Testament writers wrote about it often. Here's a chance for us to explain the spirituality of the law. Is the phrase Romans 7.14 uses. The law is spiritual. I am carnal or unspiritual. Or even more immediate, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this teaching all the time. 
His formula was, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. In each of those statements, Christ is magnifying the law to move the understanding from letter to spirit. You can build on that uh, in your preaching. As you try to reach your congregation, you can bring in companion texts like Romans 7 or Matthew 5. Make it present. Make it pertinent. Talking to the believer, your life right now, or to the church in our church right now. This is where the opportunity comes now for self-examination, for repentance, and for spiritual growth as we challenge God's people to grow in this passage. That's just verse 17. We go on, verse 18. Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this had a meaning in the original context as well. The Jews had this concept of absolute goodness that applied to God alone. This is what Christ is talking in. God alone is intrinsically good as an expression of his divine nature. This was the understanding based on theology then. And as one who was raised in Judaism, the rich young man surely knew this teaching. So Jesus is trying to get him to reflect on it in answer to his question, what must I do? One commentator put it this way. Jesus is saying by implication, quote, There is none essentially, entirely, absolutely good, but one, and that is God. Therefore, seek after him. Love him. Imitate him. He alone can satisfy your longing desires, as in this life with grace, in the life to come with glory, he himself. Now we understand what Jesus was doing when he confronted this man with this question, why do you call me good? The rich man didn't understand, didn't realize that he was talking to the answer to his question. No one is good but God, Jesus said. He did not know that. He didn't know what the disciples knew. Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The rich young man didn't know that. So Christ is trying to get him there, trying to give, uh, give him a step of saving faith by saying, no one is good but God. Again, I have a chance for application here, moving from the then to now. The same concept has meaning now. If you're looking for the answer in your life, not just an answer, you have found it in Christ. Whatever's going on in your life, I can you know, take it there, whatever's going on in your life. I can make the application. I can contrast the disciples and the rich man and make that application to my, to my hearers. They had left everything to follow Jesus. There was nothing new. Christ is telling him to sell everything. Well, the disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. Now he's telling this man to do the same thing. What about us? See, that's the application. Have I left all to follow Jesus? That's the message here in this verse. Okay, 19 and 20. Christ is speaking. You know, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these have I kept since I was a boy. All right. Let's think about this in the original context. In answer to his question, Jesus is pointing him to the commandments. The answer to the salvation question. Now, he had already pointed the young man to himself as the answer when he said, no one is good but God. But now he's pointing him to the commandments. What's going on here in context? Jesus is addressing the issue of salvation by meeting the young man where he is. 
Jesus knows the starting place of Hebrew theology is the law, which also becomes the ending place in Hebrew theology, legalism. So Christ is starting at the starting line with this young man, sending him to the commandments, to take him to the finish line, which was he himself. Christ is leading him through the steps of salvation, sending him on a journey from law to grace. So he says, have you kept the commandments? The young man thinks he has done. So, in other words, he is stuck at the law. In fact, he's looking for more laws. What must I do? That's where he's stuck. I can sure make an application there to God's people today. And it's, it's all through the epistles, the letters. You know that the epistles explain the gospels. So, that's where this is described. This journey of salvation for the believer. Our first stop is the commandments. All Christians keep the commandments. But when we go there, we find out we can't keep them because the law is spiritual. Which then leads us in our second step to Jesus. He is the goal. He's the only one that has perfectly kept them. You and I are on this journey. Where are you on the journey? Are you stuck at the law? See? There's an application I can use. Now, let me make a note here. The issue of the spirituality of the law is a subject all to itself, and it needs a sermon all its own, maybe even a series of sermons. So as a preacher, I have a chance to kind of put a little light on that right here. I can't, I can't take off and go to that completely because that's a different text. But I can kind of make a hint at it here to, to pique the interest of my listeners and come back to it in another sermon at some point. Spirituality of the law. That's a profound. I'm gonna have to pre- I'm gonna preach that one of these times uh, in one of these sermons on uh, on him. Now. Okay, verse twenty one. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The NLT says felt genuine love for him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. As I read the commentary, some of them say that the Hebrew can suggest that he, this word, this language, gazing at him, or looking at him with tender, steadfast love. Okay, here comes the love now in Christ's conversation with this young man. We saw in step one that this is the crucial text of the whole passage, the one that presents the testing truth, the salvation truth. We know it's the key text because this is the text in which Jesus offers himself. So we need to spend some time here as we preach this passage. This is the key text. One thing you lack, says Mark. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, sell everything you have, etc., etc. So this is the ultimate answer to the question. It has two parts. Sell all you have, part one. Then come follow me, part two. In other words, it's an exchange. The Lord's object is to reveal the young man to himself. He doesn't know himself, self-awareness. And to reveal to him his stumbling block, his besetting sin, which is his love of his money. The rich man comes to him because he knows something is missing, but he doesn't see the depth of his need because his money stands in his way. He thinks all he needs is more stringent rules, 
What can I do? He doesn't know that his need is actually not things, but a person, and that person is standing right before him. Jesus. Okay, application. For us, great application we can make for our hearers right here. The central truth that applies to all who desire salvation is revealed right here. It's the idea of exchange. Based on Christ's miraculous love for us, the offer is of exchange. He says, everything you have in exchange for everything I am. Give up things and get me. That's the exchange. And the Bible says, Jesus makes this offer out of love. In fact, the New American Standard Bible interprets the text, Jesus showed him his love and said, sell everything you have. That was his love statement. Sell everything, come follow me. The offer is of an exchange. So what the rich man thinks of as his advantage is actually his Achilles heel. He's a victim of what the Bible calls in Mark 4.19, the deceitfulness of riches. You ever wonder why Christ uses that language? The deceitfulness of riches. Like no other idol, especially in a culture of capitalism, money has the power to deceive us. Because it is not evil in itself, the Bible does not say money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of sin. So it's not evil in itself. In fact, money can be used to do marvelous good. So it has the appearance of virtue, which makes it dangerous. Others admire you when you have it, the danger of pride. You can do good things with it to make you feel good about yourself, the danger of a false sense of security. Also, it can set your heart on acquiring more wealth to the neglect of spiritual things, the danger of falling into the love of the world. It's all right there. So money, then, is a sneaky God. And by the way, we do our people a great disservice when we treat them special if they have money. See? We make them susceptible to thinking they're better or more deserving. So we notice them when they have money. We put them at the head of the line because they have money. We name pews after them, name buildings after them because they have money. We're actually leading them down a dangerous path because money's a sneaky god. Money worms its way into our hearts. It takes over the throne. We don't even realize it. And we fall into the deception of materialism. Defined as the tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. The things of eternity are made subordinate to the things of the world in materialism. This is how the text applies to every believer. You don't have to be wealthy or rich to be materialistic. You can have $5 to your name and still be a materialistic person, someone who values things above people, above Christ. Living for the acquisition of things, even if you never get them, materialistic. The rich young ruler is just an example of this, this value system to the extreme. But every lesser example presents the same problem. See, this is the spiritual power of money. Its ability, hear me now, its ability to get into the heart and replace faith in God. That's the spiritual power that money has. Faith in things, the desire of things, instead of faith in God and a deep desire for more of Christ. So these texts come to mind. 
companion text from Jesus, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See? Spiritual power of money. Matthew 6, 24, Christ says, You cannot serve both God and money. And money is capitalized in the translations of that passage. In the KJV, it says you can't serve God in mammon, which conveys the same idea. Christ is not talking about money in terms of amount, dollars and cents. He's talking about money as a power, money as a God. So Christ is asking the rich young man to remove one God from the throne and replace it with him, the true God, who along belongs on the, who only belongs on the throne of our hearts and of our lives. It's an exchange. You have to get rid of one false god. You can't have him hanging around. For the rich young ruler, this god can only the removal of this god can only be accomplished in one way. Give all your money away. Get rid of the false god. Replace him with me, the true God. See? Christ is offering exchange. Maybe this is a sermon title here, Change of Thrones. The thematic sentence might be Every believer is challenged in Christ to search out what false God may be on the throne of their lives and replace, remove it and replace it with Jesus. See, change of thrones. Might be a sermon title. Is it going too far to say Game of Thrones? You might, want, you might not want to affiliate that, that show with your sermon, but maybe that's going too far. You'll decide. But the idea is there. Christ is offering a change of thrones. Every believer must make that exchange if we're going to have Christ and be saved. Okay, verse 22. Here's the sad text. At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. Some translations say gloomy or grieving he went away. His brow darkened. This is stunning. He ran up enthusiastically. He walks away sad. Why? Because he has great wealth. And the choice he was making was crystal clear. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't subconscious. Jesus brought it out stark and plain. Jesus said, your money or me. It was clear. And he walked away because he couldn't let go of his money. What was he thinking at that point, I wonder? Christ Object Lessons 393. He wanted eternal life, but would not receive into the soul that unselfish love, which alone is life. Think about that. He came, what must I do to be saved? But what he needed to do, which would have been uh, reflected in selling the money, that is to embrace unselfish love, that he would not do. He got the answer to his question. When he found out what it was, he didn't want it. He walked away sad. So now take a step back. Excuse me. Take an overview. Notice the dimensions of this whole story. He was looking for something he could do, works righteousness. He was being prevented by something he had, materialism. He rejected what he needed to become, transformation. Works righteousness, materialism, transformation. There's an overview right there. Application. Anything that makes you walk away from Jesus is your Jesus. Here's the irony. The rich young man thought he was a commandment keeper. Already, he was walking, yet he was walking away from the Lord of the commandments. Again, the deceitfulness of money. 
Beloved, we never realize the hold money may have over us until the Lord commands us to give it up. I'm not talking now about giving out of our abundance. That doesn't make a dent. I'm talking about giving sacrificially. When you have to give, when you have to lose in order to give, that's the test. When I'm willing to have less so somebody else can have what they need. To step down from a, a position of, of honor because of my possessions so that another person can step up from poverty to a place where they can have what they need. Step away from status at the command of Christ. That's the test. We don't realize how much we, we may be tied to our money until that test comes. And it must come. Now, another application. I'm winding down here. There's another principle taught in this exchange between Christ and the rich young man that's taught indirectly, and that is the biblical principle of detachment. See? When Jesus comes, he doesn't want us to have any money left at the second coming. Not in savings, not in checking, not in the piggy bank, not in the business account, not in investment or in the markets. Material things have no value in heaven. They can't be transferred to heaven. They only have value down here to be used for Christ's business. So when Jesus comes, he wants our material things to all have been spent on him and on his kingdom and reaching souls for the kingdom. They have no value in heaven. So therefore, they cannot be an end in themselves. Get that now. They cannot be an end. Christians never do something just to get money. Money is not an end in itself in the Christian life. Money is a means to an end. And the end we have in view is the kingdom of Christ being enlarged. That's our view towards our money. Early writings, 56 and 57, here's a quote. Houses and lands will be of no value to the saints in the time of trouble. If they have their property on the altar and earnestly inquire of God for duty, he will teach them when to dispose of these things. See, on the altar means... Offered up to God. It's in our possession, but it really belongs to God. Going on. I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. But if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. End of quote. So we have to live detached from our things. It's not about how much we have. It's about how we relate to the things we have. And the Bible Goal is detachment. Detached from the things that we have. They don't determine us. They don't own us. They don't direct us. They don't drive us. We're detached from them. We're ready to give them up at a moment's notice. There's a good companion text in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. The NLT says, I know how to live on almost nothing. I know how to live with everything. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is living in detachment. The key goal here is contentment. It means happiness and peace is unaffected by material circumstances. Rich or poor, well-fed or hungry, it doesn't matter. I'm content because Jesus is the only one I absolutely can't do without, and I can never lose Jesus because he will never leave me or forsake me. That's his promise to me. So I'm content whether I have little or much. My things don't make me content or unhappy. They can come or go. Just don't take Jesus from me. 
and I'll have contentment in life no matter what the circumstances. I love uh, Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Jesus is trying to show the rich young man that his deadly attachment to his things is his downfall. His money has a grip on him. And so, and so it, it blinds him to spiritual values and spiritual needs. That's his problem. Jesus looks around and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 23. The disciples are amazed at his words. 24. But Christ repeats, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples say then, it's 24, who then can be saved? Now why this amazement on their part? There's a meaning in the first century context. The Jews had a high regard for wealth, just like we do. They admired the rich for their possessions as a mark of success and luxury, but there was something more for them. Jewish morality equated wealth with righteousness. They believed the rich were wealthy because they deserved to be. God had rewarded their excellent character with cash. So they were entitled to their money. See, this is a prosperity gospel in the first century. There's an obvious application here because of the current prosperity gospel. Widespread, widely accepted, and deceptively spiritually toxic, the prosperity gospel. The teaching that says, with, with regard to wealth, the teaching says, as spiritual Israel, Christians are entitled to, to the material things of this world. They are ours, the exaltation of the wealthy. God wants us to have these things as a reward for our faith and a sign of his favor. So in other words, God's materialistic. And if you don't have these things, it's because your faith is weak, a condemnation of the poor. That's the toxicity of this prosperity gospel. This passage leads us right to it. There's a principle of salvation that is slaughtered by this false teaching. That's the principle that spiritual life always comes at the expense of natural life. The two are ever in opposition. No one can serve two masters. So James 4, 4 says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. That's not friend of the world in the sense of someone who loves the people of the world. That's friend of the world in terms of somebody who loves the things of the world, the values of the world. 1 John 2.16 describes what it means here by the world, the NLT. A craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. Whoever has that attitude, the Bible says, love of the world, is the enemy of God. That's the danger. That's the downfall of wealth. In all of his teachings, Christ promoted an agenda of the spiritual at the expense of the natural. His platform was non-political. My kingdom is not of this world. And non-materialistic, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's the teaching. That's this, that's this Mark 10. That's what it's trying to teach us. We can, we can share this with our people and help them if they'll look at themselves. Jesus says, all this is possible with God. It's not impossible. It's possible with God. Okay, well... There's a lot here to digest in one sitting. And so we're going to have to come back to it, expand on it. I'm personally going to come back to this whole thing of, uh, of uh, the prosperity gospel. We need to understand that. Deeply important. Put it under the microscope of the word. 
Not as clear as it seems on first, first glance, but by comparing Scripture with Scripture, it can become crystal clear. Okay, that's good for today. Till next time, beloved, keep humble, be faithful. Everlasting, I will praise you from everlasting.